0: This is Major League debut on 2-2 two two, Ramirez to Moncada. Yohan throws Way back right field. Look out, Goose. It's a three-run shot. You could take it to the bank. He was going to get a fastball after spiking two balls in the dirt. And that is a 4 nothing lead. Yohan has a little extra step today, a little pep. And he took it out way back, 4-17, and just like that, a little daylight between the Sox and the Cardinals. Johan was over his last 14 until that one swing of glory, and the Sox lead 4-0. a fastball is coming, and Yohan didn't miss one stitch of it. Number one of the year for Grandal, a fastball down the middle and gone. Fourth home run replay. Yikes! Bisected the plate and out of here pretty quickly. How do those lyrics go? A groove in on a Sunday afternoon. A couple words. Third way back. Socks have gone back to back. Three times this year now, and twice this week. Oh boy, that one a drive to left field. And bring him home. Three in a row. you as the last one, and Tim's having a party. First major league appearance. He's going to remember this one into his next life. But a very tough first outing for Ramirez. Can't get the breakie over. It's not a good thing. As Eloy takes it way back. O'Neill didn't even move in left field. I mean, that one was gone. But it left the batter for an home run replay. It's up. It's out. It's gone. It was his attempt at a slider that didn't slide. And maybe a splitter that didn't split. But at 85, it was right in the middle of the plate. And... It's out of here, so A very tough debut for Ramirez And one that Sox fans and players are not likely to forget anytime soon The 2 2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down. A fastball. Swung on. It's a deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back in. From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex in straight out of God's Country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K-Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good
1: moment, baseball universe. What's cracking? It's your boy, Jake the State Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki. Half man, half podcast machine. Back into Captain Kirk's chair. Shields down, full times up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod. Where... We collect ball players and their stories What's juicy seamheads want to welcome everyone in this week for another bkP baseball extravaganza written produced directed and mixed by yours truly this is the show where we come together as good brothers and sisters and preach the gospel of baseball through our indelible stories and before we get started this week I have a couple things I need to say to the audience and it's about to get a mady little team I guess. Yeah, you know, my hardcore fans know that I, that I don't dub and re-record ever. What you hear from me every week is one take snake. All my genius, all my humor, and all my flaws and warts as well. So be it. I approach this like a radio show. I could spend hours on these shows, put them out every other week, and they would be flawless. I don't do that. I keep it guerrilla-style pod. Quite frankly, I'm proud of that. I'm not afraid one iota to bear it all out. In the past year, I've been blessed to be your voice of history for this game. And it's an honor that I'm grateful for every single week. I don't take it lightly. It's been therapeutic for me to share my love of baseball with you team heads. This show has grounded me. It's given me purpose every week to stay the course, maintain balance. I'm a better father because of this show. I'm a better friend and confidant because of this show. And some of you in the audience have a direct phone line to me. I get your texts and your calls from all around the world. I'm an extremely lucky dude to have this intense passion that we share with one another. As this show winds down this first season, I want you all to know how appreciative I am for you. Outside of this, I live a very mundane, grinders life just like a lot of you. I've known victory in my life. I've also known incredible loss. I squandered moments in my life to be the best man that I could possibly be, and I failed. And Shay Lebrand said it best on here a few weeks ago, and it's really resonated with me since. Audit, your perspective. So I told you a few months ago I was having medical issues, and I've been dealing with them the best that I can because, you know, it's not just one thing. It's a myriad of things going on. Well, some of these issues have returned. I feel like it's only a matter of time before this is all over. And those closest to me will tell you, I don't bitch and moan. I don't talk about it in confidence or anywhere else. I just woke up. I wake up every day like all you great C-Meds in my audience. I put my pants and shoes on. I head out into the world. I fight the good fight to win my day. And I promise you, as long as I have the ability to speak clearly, I will fight on. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Please bear with me if my speech is impaired. I fight so hard to make sure you can understand me every week. It takes incredible concentration and mouth manipulation on my part. I know sometimes I mumble words or say them incorrectly. And please understand that that's, you know, not a reflection of my cognitive intelligence. Well, (laughs) I mean, I don't think so at least. But look, for the most part, it isn't. It's not a reflection of my intelligence. I have now begun to pre-write, produce as many shows as possible to put in the can. My number one goal in my mission statement was to leave my voice behind, to leave a catalog about this game that no real baseball fan can ignore. I will accomplish my mission to the best of my ability until I cannot. I just want the tens of people who listen to me every week know, I love you, and as your fearless leader, I will give you everything I have from here on out, it has been my honor to be your captain, I would love to someday hand these reins over, ensure the survival of Backwards K-Pod and the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network for future generations, once I've been decommissioned, <laughs> I'm giving my blood, sweat, and tears to this thing, i that I built, and I still don't quite know what it is I built or why I did it. Was it ego? Did I do this because I need your love and acceptance? Maybe. I've never had that constantly, uh, you know, or consistently in my life from anyone other than, well, my grandmother. I truly hope it was not ego because there are plenty of people who are not fans of me. So, if that was the case, I have been an abject failure in those regards. And I truly hope it was not ego. I want to believe I do this because I truly love baseball. And maybe deep down inside, I knew one day I would lose my ability to speak. And I had to scream to the world how much I love baseball. And I've heard things from my friends and you, the audience. I'm worn down. I'm not healthy. My daily dose of pain and lethargy is taken over. I suffer from extreme COPD, which explains why it sounds like I've been doing shots of nails and whiskey all night. I'm type 1 diabetic. My mouth is an issue. I'm not yet ready to open up about that until I'm exhausted all these avenues. I'm not saying this to go into sympathy. Look, a snake has no use for such things. Only my true inner circle has had this knowledge about me, which is, you know, like two people. No one in my family, not even my own daughter, you, the audience, are really the first people I'm opening up a little bit to. And I will continue to promote my brand because honestly, folks, this show is as important as any article you will see on MLB Rumors. Any analysis you see on MLB Network, certainly more important than any baseball news ESPN might cover for two minutes. I truly feel that way. Maybe that won't be realized until I'm gone, but it is. No sport has the diverse history and longevity in this country that baseball has. Well, yeah, maybe boxing and horse racing, but those sports are relics. And my fear is baseball would become a relic as well. Not on my watch. As long as I can speak, I'm in the fight. But I've begun protocols to expand those days as long as I can. It's literally going to break my heart to not be able to talk baseball to your good brothers and sisters at some point. It's going to happen. I need you to get, well, I need to get a bare minimum of 52 shows in the camp for my c before I'm put on the shelf. That's my mission. I will not fail you. You guys know, I've never missed a week, never missed a deadline. I probably come from Baltimore, and I believe in the Cal and Jr. way. Every week my name is on that lineup card. I'm going to give you everything i got till I can't no more. So, with that being said, Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can find my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. To hear all the shows I've done and all the ones I'm going to get. Uh, I will never charge you for the content. No Patreon. No crowdsourcing. I do have some great uh, Yeti, Bubba K type of hot and cold, handcrafted backwards cake cups for sale. I'll tell you more about that when I wrap the show up. You can buy them or not, but yeah, I will never charge you for the content. When I give you bonus shows, they're fucking free. If you're listening to me via Apple or Spotify, please rate and review my performance as you see fit. I ain't scared. The more these given to me, the better. As it helps the show stay viable. It shows up in more search engines. If you love baseball history, I beg of you, make this show last for future generations. You may not be a fan of every topic, but I guarantee you, if you listen to them, even the ones you think you have no interest in, I promise you, you will learn something about baseball that you never knew before. So, look. It looks like the catcher is coming down. I'm going to call all aboard. Uh, uh. Let's get this train rolling once again as we head back to South Chicago this week to take a look at the next baseball stadium on the backwards K-Pod itinerary. And that is going to be the home of the White Sox. Guaranteed Rate field. Now, one thing I've learned doing this show is I've actually become a baseball historian. I feel like a guardian of the game's history. And as a historian, I've also need to learn how to not to be too judgy when dealing with most topics. A historian should rarely judge because most of the time you're only seeing the after the fact perspective. You have to think about the time, the era, the other options involved. It becomes much too easy to judge after the fact, 2020 hindsight. Now, sometimes, I do color outside of those lines. For instance, last week, I made the argument that Buck Weaver is the most egregiously banned baseball player in baseball history. I stand by that. Probably shouldn't have said that. Probably should have let you, the audience, come to your own conclusion. But, but every once in a while, I'm human. I shoehorn my opinion on that. And sometimes, I think the audience would actually like me to assert assert my opinion a little more. So... I kind of went there last week. Well, this week's challenge is to stay as neutral as possible about a stadium that originally had so many bad reviews since day one. I mean, from writers to reporters to even their own fans. The majority of people have hated this stadium until only recently. And I will be doing a show in the original Comiskey Park sometime in February, March, I believe. And Comiskey, without a shadow of a doubt, was one of the greatest baseball cathedrals to ever house a ball team. I want the White, White Sox fans to know that this is a result of research I, I have done on the park. In no way is the history of Guaranteed Rate Rayfield my indictment on your stadium or the South Side of the shy. I told Chi-Town last week how I feel about them. No major city has supported me like Chicago this year, not even my own home city. And Chicago and I, we kindred spirits until my last day on pod. I mean, if you enjoy your baseball stadium, then who cares what people think? I'm here to address the history of the stadium as I have done from Wrigley all the way up to Rogers Center so far. The construction for the stadium was literally approved at the stroke of midnight. Give or take a couple minutes, <laughs> I'll get to that. Guarantee Rate was built to be the king of ballparks, but it literally became yesterday's news within a year. Many a White Sox fan has told me uh, in the past two week, two weeks it's like this soul. It used to be like this soulless venue with its vertigo-inducing upper deck heights and its refusal to uh, integrate with the neighborhood. Unlike the Cross City Rivals in Wrigleyville. However, the White Sox, uh, better late than never, they've begun the attempt to right a lot of those wrongs. And we'll get there. When sports-minded tourists visit the winning city, they tend to head straight to Wrigley, Soldiers Field. Uh, not necessarily an attempt to watch a game at Wrigley or Soldier Field, but just to be a part of the experience. Part of the neighborhood that embraces the uh, uh, Wrigley, and the sport with its pubs and restaurants welcoming you to watch the game from their rooftops. Those same vis- visitors likely think little of including guaranteed rate field on their itinerary, unless. They're diehard Sox fans. Essentially, it is anti-Wrigley. The only restaurant within a long fly ball from the stadium is Chai Sox Bar and Grill, which is co by the White Sox themselves, and a part of a structure that includes Spectator ramps and Skywalks to get fans across 35th Street to the field. The only adjacent residence is an old folks high-rise beyond center field. But no one is watching the game from that rooftop, unless... You know, they want to pay to see the ascent of the exploding scoreboard and its giant sura- surrounding ad panels. The surrounding neighborhood is stiff-armed by the field. It's courted off to the west by railroad tracks, to the east by two interstate freeways that literally run parallel to one another. And the north and south are dominated by ground-level parking lots that seem to extend for almost a mile. And it leaves an outsider to think, guarantee Rainfield must be a pretty special place to warrant such exclusivity amid a big piece of Chicago real estate, right? Well, not so much. But the White Sox are putting forth the effort to change their field's perception. When it opened in 1991, it was christened the new Comiskey Park. It was hardly a jaw-dropping structure from the aesthetic perspective. Certainly, Sky Dome, built two years before New Comiskey, had more bells and whistles and technological advances than this crib. New Comiskey was dignified, a reflection of South Chicago's blue collar approach, with touches of the cathedral across the street, most notably in her arched openings. But so much of it was was and remains obscured by a series of pedestrian ramps like catwalks that one may confuse, uh, you know, this area as like a small parking garage. And then there is the inside, where the White Sox desire to jam as many seats as possible to the crib led to a lower bowl uh, topped by three mountainous tiers of luxury boxes, club-level seats, and tall, steep upper deck. That can make anyone feel like they are flying too close to the sun like Icarus. The White Sox did shave off the top since then and gave it roofing for more baseball intimacy. This has been one of the most uh, visible fixes of the latest renovation efforts. However, they're the only park of the majors that does not allow ticket holders on the upper deck to be anywhere else in the ballpark. If you are an upper deck ticket holder, you either stay there or you leave the stadium. Wow. I mean, I've never heard of such a policy. What do you think of that? That's crazy. For those fans the sell a nickname derived from a stadium's second name change, U.S. Seller Field, it took on a whole new meaning being at the cell. Worse yet, Guarantee Rayfield just missed out on the retro ballpark era. While the White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf's focus was on emulating a modern day Calvin Stadium like in KC, a stadium that was built nearly two decades before and was the last true ballpark built to date. And I've covered the incredible history of Coffin Stadium. You can find their story in my archives wherever you listen to your pods, or you can go to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear this fascinating story. The White Sox were apparently unmoved or unaware. What H.O.K. Sport, the very same architects for New Comiskey, were up to in Baltimore. When Orioles Park and Camden Yards opened a year later, to a game changing success that would set the influential bar and foundation for stadiums to come, New Comiskey instantly became uh, outdated in the minds of many. Washington based political columnist, who is an unapologetic Orioles apologist, called New Comiskey the last stupid ballpark after Camden Yards was built. Uh, that was George Will. Washington-based political columnist. So, what happened? How did this all come to be? Well, when Rysdorf bought the Sox in 1981, he knew that the Red Sox were the second fiddle, I'm sorry, that the White Sox were the second fiddle baseball team to the Cubs. Despite all the losing, the Cubs had the glory of the city. They garnered stronger ratings. And they had Wrigley Field. The White Sox... Well, they weren't doing well in the standings either. They had an ancient stadium as well, but Comiskey lacked all of the romantic qualities that make Wrigley special. No Ivy, no Bleacher Bombs, no Wrigleyville. They didn't even have a lovable broadcaster Harry Carey anymore after he bowled for the North Side Cubs after Ron Store's first year. Before J- Jerry took over, you had Bill Beck in two separate stints as a Sox owner, and he had some success, but... It didn't erase the reputation of an aging relic in a rough neighborhood. So, Rydorf begins to angle for a new crop for the White Sox. He knew that it was going to be a tough sell as a new sports facility. It hadn't been built in Chicago since the Prohibition in the early Twenties, fortunately for Jerry. He was friends with former law school pal James Thompson, who just happened to be the governor of Illinois. As the governor struggles to get uh, the stadium authority set up, Reinstorf begins eyeing a parcel of land in suburban Addison, and he buys it in hopes of building a new stadium there. Chicago Mayor Harold Washington, he's not amused by the Sox bolting to the city of the suburbs, and he tells the club, if you go to Addison, the White Sox can, can no longer go by the name Chicago. And Reinsdorf is besides himself with laughter after Mayor Washington issues this threat. But he ain't laughing for long when the tally comes in from the Addison voters to reject the stadium by a mere 50 50- Votes, Even though pro ballpark forces had outspent the opposition $100 to one. One thing many of us know about Jerry, he's resourceful. Addison was the plan with building a stadium next to the old Comiskey uh, as the fallback option. But what are Jerry's options if the fallback falls to shit? Well, this is where Jerry begins talking to the people in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, what is now raised country. A 40,000 seat dome box, We now know as the drop. Had been built to lure an MLB franchise. The city of St. Pete. Was eager to have somebody in there. Anybody to occupy that stadium. They offered Jerry a sweetheart deal. Uh, Should the new Comiskey project fail. And armed with this new leverage. Reinsdorf made it clear. No new stadium. No more Chicago White Sox. And he made it clear that he grew up a fan of Brooklyn when the Dodgers left, and he's telling these dudes, I'm not bluffing. His heart and heart law degree, and ownership ego was plenty of reason for South Chicago to fear losing their beloved White Sox. Things got rocky as the day of the vote is getting nearer and nearer. Soon, the productive, uh, protective Chicago media began throwing jabs. Chicago Tribune columnist Mike Royko, he goes all Al Capone on Florida, engaging the state in a war of words, urging the city to not drink orange juice, stating that everyone in St. Pete looks like George Burns. On June 30th, 1988, the Illinois state legislature took up the matter of new commission on the very last day of its session, if it wasn't passed by midnight, the bill would die. And so would the White Sox in Chicago. Well, you know, if you believe Ronsdorf. And there is no reason not to. So, Governor Thompson, he goes to work. His first act is to grease the state Senate. He needs 30 or 56 votes to keep the Sox in the shy. He was able to get the 30. Exactly 30. But... That's just half of his job. Now he has to move the bill to the House where 60 votes out of 115 are needed and time is literally ticking, ticking, ticking and working against him. Working both sides of the aisle, twisting arms. Thompson found uh, found himself six votes shy at five minutes to midnight. And by now, he is running on political fumes and he has had it in his head that this is going to fail, and the White Sox are going to be playing in Tampa, and they're probably going to change their name to something like, you know, the Devil Rays or something. At 11.59, Chicago time, Floridians of Tampa St. Pete. they begin a New York-style Rockefeller Center type of countdown, ready to explode over the prospects of their new baseball team. In the chamber of the Illinois house, the clock went dead. Time officially stood still. Thompson apparently was able to buy more time. It was worth the political investment as the governor got his 60th vote. The White Sox got their ballpark and it was officially announced that the bill had been declared passed at 1159, even though everyone's watch read yeah 1203 at that time. The fans of St. Pete are as stunned as they had probably never heard how sick kids done in Chicago. The approved bill called for a $150 million ballpark with the public receiving uh, $2.50 per ticket, over 1.2 million tickets sold, and 35% annually of all broadcast and ad revenue above $10 million. In exchange, the White Sox would get $5 million in upkeep insurance costs yearly and a uh, $2 million in extra cash to do with what they please, there was also a provision stipulated that if attendance fell below $1.5 million between 2001 and 2010, the city of Chicago would have to buy up to 300,000 tickets to make up the difference. Fortunately, for a city that is hemorrhaging money, that scenario never played out. With the political victory in the rearview mirror, the White Sox began to set their focus on the aesthetics of the ballpark and her surroundings. Uh, A Philip Bess, highly talented architecture professor professor at Notre Dame, had partnered up with the Society for American Baseball Research or SABER as most of us know them Together they set a vision and a design concept for what the new Comiskey Park should look like. And it was a bold vision with an eye to the future. In a time when enclosed, multi-purpose cribs ruled the day, they envisioned an, an inclusive, inviting ballpark that not only fit into the adjo- uh, adjoining neighborhood, it would open the south side up as an urban a beacon surrounded by housing, retail, restaurants, and commerce. It was to also include a rec park featuring the ball field left over from the old Comiskey. Field, as it was to be called, it was to be a shout-out to the jewel box stadiums like Wrigley Field and Fenway Park with the retro feel of yesterday's ballpark stadiums in the modern game. And Philip Best made the argument that owners had become too focused on revenue, str- revenue streams to engage local residents as part of the plan. And because of this, baseball stadiums became large concrete slabs or cookie-cutter monstrosities built for multi-sports and any other event that may be feasible to make cash. J. Ronsdorf and the White Sox, they wanted absolutely nothing to do with Bess and his baseball romance horseshit ideas. Armor Field was to have a gorgeous view of downtown Chicago, but with the news Skomisky, the Sox Brain Trust decided the view was to face southeast, where the distant landscape had been dotted with housing projects. It's almost as if the team were more concerned in giving up cheap home runs than the aesthetics as they decided to lay the footprint of the ballpark so that the typical south winds, prevailing winds wouldn't push fly balls through the windows of the Sears Tower. And sidebar here, folks. I'm just imagining the White Sox with an open-faced stadium with the Sears Tower in the background. How dope is that? Boy, oh boy, what could have been. Rather than surround the ballpark with a neighborhood and build it up, they destroyed one to put the stadium up. With the backing of the city of Chicago, nearly 100 residents in a poor black section sat in the way of New Comiskey and her newfound ambitions. For being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and certainly doesn't help that you're poor and you're black. The city gave homeowners $25,000 and then evicted, evicted them from their homes. Uh, Not as egregious as the backstory to Dodger Stadium, which is in my archives, but still... Uh, pretty shitty, nonetheless. Along with the destruction of homes and lives, local businesses were put out of business, including McCuddy's Tavern, one of the most visited watering holes on the South Side, if you're a Sox fan. The place had been around so long that Babe Ruth used to show up when he was in town playing in Chicago. The owners refused an offer to move the pub three blocks away in a sim- sim- uh, smaller venue, as requested by the Illinois Sports Facility Authority. H.O.K. Sports, the architecture firm I mentioned out of KC, uh, they were in charge of the new Comiskey design. They were no stranger to Philip Bess and his vision for the Army Field concept. They had just completed pilot field for a minor league team in Buffalo, and this is considered the spark for Orioles Park and Camden Yards. While H.O.K. was chomping, HOK was chomping at the bit to change the baseball stadium game forever in the city of Chicago, Uh, With this, you know, throwback new Comiskey. The orders from the White Sox would prove frustrating. Rick DeFlan, HOK's lead architect on the project, admitted he was not handed the utopian exercise he had hoped for. He was restricted by budget set by the Illinois Sports Facility Authority, as well as the logistical demands of the club, even as they're telling him not to turn his back on the old Comiskey. He also notes that what you see as a finished product is the realities of budget, schedule, bureaucratic red tape, and you can't build the Taj Mahal on a serious budget. The arched openings spaced around a stadium bowl, were a nod to old Comiskey, but unlike the old ball yard, the openings were covered with highly reflective glass with beige painted precast concrete etched with abstract patterns and it gave the New yard the look of, a, you know, like a sporty o- office complex complex. And intimacy was hard to find once you were inside of the new, new, new crib. So were the players if you are the upper deck. Someone did the actual math, and they discovered that the closest seat in new Comiskey upper deck was farther from the field than the last row of seats in the upper deck of old Comiskey. And it was much higher. The steepness of the upper deck in conjunction with the mighty winds of Chicago rolling off those great lakes, they forced the team to actually close portions of the level as a safety precaution sometimes. I've had White Sox fans tell me the last few days how uh, cool it is to look down on a pop fly ball. And to be fair... New Comiskey wasn't a total dud on opening day. Unlike the Sox, you know, they they were a dud on opening day. They put the Tigers 16 to nothing in their first game, and it's still the worst shutout loss in uh, GRF history. And there were things found around the ball yard to warm your baseball passions. It wasn't all bad. The famous exploding scoreboard conceived by Beck in the 60s was installed to celebrate White Sox home runs with an arcade-like display of fireworks and twirling pinwheels, a cornucopia of statues that total nine at last count. Uh, They surround the the, the concourse of the lower bowl uh, in the outfield, uh, those players are Frank Thomas, Harold Baines, Louisa Aparicio, Carlton Fisk, Charles Comiskey, Billy Pierce, Nellie Fox, and Minnie Minoso. And the most recent addition, Paul Canerco displaying uh, the White Sox deep history and legacy. And Paulie, he, he's a Southside player. Legend. I think I got a clip from uh, his grand slam in the World Series. I would be remiss if we didn't play this on the uh, history guarantee field.
0: two out, with Kenendor, and he rips one another.
1: that's still a very, very cool moment. I I remember that as clear as a bell, even though it it seems so long ago, so long ago. So they got these awesome statues out there, and uh, Paul Canerco is the last one they put out there. Uh, Nancy Faust, the team organist for 40 years, she came over from Old Comiskey, and she kept her renowned position. And for what it's worth, the infield dirt from the old ballpark, it came over to the, the the new ball yard as well but still local architects and critics they declared the ballpark uh you know a disappointment considering the rich tradition of acclaimed structures in the windy windy city which that's totally fucking true if you've ever been to chicago i mean they have some of the most beautiful buildings in that city they really do the horrible debut aside new comiskey was hit Uh, with the fans when it opened in 1991. It was a a total hit for the White Sox fans. They loved it. An all-time White Sox attendance record was shattered when there were 2.9 million people clicked the turnstiles, a number that would stand until 2006, a year after the Sox beat the Strohs in the World Series. For the bulk of the 90s, the White Sox matched the Crosstown Cubs fan for fan, and sometimes they outdrew them. On the field, the Cubs didn't come close as the White Sox took three divisional titles in the first decade at that new park. And Reinsdorf ignored the criticism of New Comiskey. He didn't want to hear about mile-high fans with their heads literally in the clouds, or the endless '70s-style parking lots that stretch into the distance, or the retro character uh, that was beginning—the uh, retro-style stadiums that were beginning to grace the game elsewhere at this time. Instead, Reinsdorf blamed the '94 strike atmosphere that left fans turning their back on the team, the way the ballpark turned their back on the Chicago skyline. Around 2000, Ryan Storm had his coming to Jesus moment. And he finally admitted the ballpark needed work. They hired a different architect firm, Dallas-based HKS, the designers that brought us the ballpark in Arlington. And they spent almost as much money on renovations, $118 million, as they did to build the thing. It was a seven-year renovation that was undertaken bit by bit. It uh, may not have transformed into Wrigley, but it was a sorely needed improvement. And he really did do a good job. 2,000 seats were planted in the lower deck, eliminating foul ground territory, and hitting bullpens from the fans and managers, trying to keep an eye on their bully. That combined with a reduction of field distance down the line, it made the ballpark come alive offensively. After it always been considered, you know, fair batter-to-hitter kind of stadium. In 2004, 272 bombs were dropped between uh, the White Sox and their opponents. And that's the most ever hit in a ballpark, not named Coors Field. The bleacher section was enlivened by more than just the extra opportunity to catch Dong. A multi-tiered party deck was introduced over the batter's eye wall in center field. Uh, over near left field, a three-level funhouse of baseball skills interaction. It arcs out above the bleachers. All around the ballpark, the concourses uh, were beautified. And the club levels were closed, uh, you know, and they're climate-controlled. All the seats were repainted green except for two that were left in the original blue. One behind left field where Paul Canerco hit his 2005 World Series Grand Slam that I just played for you, and the other in right, where Scott Pesednik walked off uh, a shot in that same game, and it landed in that seat. The biggest improvement took place in the upper deck. The top eight rows, totaling 6,000 seats, they were chopped off. Uh, Along with that curved roofing that pretty much covered nothing, replacing it was a more expansive flat roof that resembled old Comiskey, giving that top deck more intimacy and baseball charm. To pay for the makeover, new Comiskey was renamed U.S. Cellular Field as the telecommunication giant paid $68 million for 20 years of naming rights. Predictably, fans fouled on the uh, corporate name. With some fans referring to the stadium as the cell. And side note here, folks, uh, I hate corporate names. I really do. These owners are billionaires. They don't need corporate names on their cribs. That are always charging every. Uh, you know, they're always changing every decade or so. You know, never forget Enron. He- and, you know, here's the rule that I live by: any stadium. That has a corporate name. In my book they can't be number one. None of these corporate names have a cool factor. When I ask you the name of your stadium. And you give me some corporate bullshit. The value of your crib. It automatically dips in my eye. And I'd love to hear your opinion on this. I know most people it doesn't matter. But when I hear PNC, Oracle Park. They're beautiful stadiums. They're awesome. But... Those corporate names, they dropped your stadium a ton of miles. But I digress. The rebranding of the crib again in 2016 to guarantee Field had generated even more disdain and rightfully so in my opinion. Folks couldn't help but chuckle at the use of the mortgage company's logo which features a red arrow going downward on the facade of the building. The White Sox have continued to add here and there. Recently, they installed a social media hangout called Hashtag Sox Social uh, Lounge. And that's on the lower deck with monitors, changing stations, charging stations, and couches for fans to relax and text with their friends. One thing is for sure at Guaranteed Field, you will never go hungry as the stadium is routinely at the top of food quality. I told you about the Chai socks Bar and Grill across 31st Street, 35th Street, uh, featuring your basic pub grub menu, burgers, chicken, fries, ribs, uh, that are quite inexpensive when it comes to ballpark food Uh, when I was looking at the menu. Behind the right field fence, there is the Miller Lite bullpen bar, which transcends, you know, like a dive bar-like atmosphere underneath the bleachers. There's also the Stadium Club, a full-bore restaurant that has panoramic view of the ballpark from the right field corner. The myriad of more common eateries encircle the park. And this is evoking memories of the White Sox stars. No Sox fan should ever forget the Bill Meltons, Chico Carousels, and the Sherm Lawlers, etc., etc. Between the lines, the Sox have made themselves very comfortable at Guaranteed Ray Field. They have rarely stunk up the place and helped that the rise of Frank Thomas coincided with, uh, you know, Walking into this new crib, the the Hall of Famer remains the ballpark's home run king with 263 dongs, just for ahead of fan favorite Paulie canerico that I played earlier. And while the new offensive stadium has helped bolster team power, it has made it more difficult for Chicago pitchers. Well, most of them, Uh, you know, not Mark Burley, who won 90 games at Guaranteed Field with two no-hitters, including the Parks' only perfect game in 2009. To remind us all that amazing defensive play that Dwayne Wise made in that perfect game, there is a typographical reminder atop the left field fence that simply says, the catch. And I mentioned to you Frank Thomas and, you know, Chicago White Sox, we got to play a Frank Thomas clip here, right? I mean, I would be remiss. So, I think I got Frank Thomas on my board here. Let me
0: see what we got here. Hold on one second. So, $12,400 donated by Alex and Ursus. That is the number 400. The Big Frank you put it on the board.
1: they can put a Frank Thomas out there. You can't do a Guaranteed Rayfield show without a little Frank Thomas love. White Sox fans, uh, they seem to have come to terms with Guaranteed Rayfield. Whether the surrounding residents have come to terms is another story, especially for the poor, largely black community communities that feel a sense of segregation as the ballpark has become a wedge between them and the trendier white neighborhoods to the north and west amid its basic criticisms uh there is a tendency to give the old bird a pass on the basis of bad timing and while the crowds have certainly embraced their south chicago home guaranteed Rate field was and still remains a missed opportunity and that my Seam Red friends, is the story of Kibiski 2.0 guaranteed rate field. And it's like I said before, my job as an entrusted guardian of the history of this sport is to give you thorough research. If the White Sox fan loves their house, then that's all that fucking matters. It's funny. I was talking to one of my Sox friends last week and I mentioned how, as a kid, I never really knew much about Uh, South Chicago until I saw the Road Warriors wrestling tag team come up through the NWA and AWA and even though I found out much later they're originally from Minnesota they claim to be from the mean streets of South Chicago and I just always love that and you know what for me guaranteed Rayfield just it just feels like the Road Warriors of baseball stadiums nowadays. It's solid, dependable, with a hint of South Chicago badassery. assery You know, kind of like the Road Warriors. You know, the last of its kind. Well, fans, I'm going to wrap this blunt up. And that is the last stadium show for the 2022 season. I love these stadium shows. I've learned about a lot, a lot about the politics behind the builds. I've given you stories of human sadness and loss. You know, the Dodger Stadium story. Technological marvels beyond your wildest imaginations in uh, Toronto. The traditions of Fenway and Wrigley. The changing of geography in Anaheim. And I look forward to digging into all the retro modern day cribs in 2023 starting with the prototype the standard Oriole Park at Canyon Yards so before I tip on out as the locals here in Pawleys Island like to say I want to tell you about the first step into merch that I have I got these uh Handcrafted hot-cold cups from Debbie's Creations. I'm going to be posting on my website here in the upcoming weeks. I have a 35-ounce Backwards K Pod Cup as well as a 35-ounce Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Cup coming. And it's going to have the face of the LTBPN Roberto Clemente on it. It's in design now. Just keep an eye out for that. Like I said, I will never charge you for the content here. But at the end of the day... I'm an American capitalist providing a service, and if you would like to support this show in that way, uh, drop me a line, and I'll give you all the details. And I got more merch coming next year. Speaking of next year, 2023 is winding down, but the hot stove is heating up with the Grom in Texas, Trey Turner a filthy Verlander to Queens, and you know the Winter League's going down in San Diego. All eyes are focusing in on next year. And I am as well, not only looking forward to my beloved Orioles, but also a uh, full 12-month slate of clean canvas to bring you more stories. So, next week, I had planned to give you Baseball Korea. But I'm going to have to do a slight pivot this week as the Baseball Universe lost a legendary Hall of Fame pitcher a few days ago in Gaylord Perry. So, I'm going to move Baseball in Korea back a little bit. And I'm going to give you the bio on Gaylord Perry next Tuesday. Now, that was a picture that was worth paying to see. If for no other reason than to leave you like, how is he doing it? I, I can't wait to tell you all about this, cat. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod. Where we collect ballplayers. And their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shane Hillenbrand once told me, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. Have a great week, good brothers and sisters. Peace.